Welcome to Arts Express. This is Prairie Miller, and on the show, first, a poem about Hollywood, tomatoes, and Home Depot. Hi, my name is Brian Sonia Wallace, and I'm going to be reading my poem, Heirloom. Dad always grew tomatoes. They were his pride and joy. So when the lady outside Home Depot offered me the box and said, do you have a garden? I didn't say no, though I should have. I said, we have a theater. And somehow that was just as good. It grows like a weed in Hollywood, in the cracks between film and industry. It was a grease monkey's garage, then a shooting range, but only now can we call the people who run it clowns. We put the tomatoes out on the air conditioning supply unit to try to add some poetry to that phrase. Today is tomatoes in the parking lot. Tomorrow is white roof, filtered water, solar panels, cycle racks, urban garden, green building, public plaza, artist's village, to build a cultural heritage for a city I once heard described as hell's parking lot. Tomato by tomato. Because nobody dreams as hard as poets. And nobody works as hard as clowns. Thank you, Brian Sonia Wallace and the Academy of American Poets. And next on Arts Express. La mort est du domaine de la foi. I need to find out why I'm alone. Hmm. love. That's what you want more than anything. It isn't written anywhere that you have to have the answer for everything, to know everything. Go on, I'm listening. Talk. And those were scenes from Adieu la Khan, a dramatic feature touching on the work and final years of controversial and eccentric acclaimed post Freudian French psychoanalyst Jacques Lacan and based on Betty Milan's novel and play about her own therapy by Lacan, portrayed in the film by Ismenia Mendez, alias Tali Grapes, in Orange is the New Black, and acclaimed veteran actor David Patrick Kelly, who stars as Jacques Lacan, is our guest on the show in this two-part series, with the actor talking about his extraordinary career, touching on Walter Hill and David Lynch, Beckett, Joyce, Bergman, Salvador Dali, My Dinner with Andre, and both performing Sergeant Pepper once with John Lennon and portraying him on stage. All that in a future episode, but this week Kelly delves into inhabiting the complicated personality of Lacan for this film while contemplating, quote, language is the house of being and we are the caretakers. First, a presentation explaining what Lacan was all about, why we feel so empty, by Dred V.K., and inspired in part by, quote, the school of life, then David Patrick Kelly. 
This is French psychoanalyst Jack Lacan. He looks like if Frankenstein went to art school, but he had some he had some cool ideas that touch on why so many of us feel so empty all the time. Why we feel like there's just something missing. It all starts when you're a baby. And when you're a baby, there's a moment when you look in the mirror and go, oh, oh that, that's that's just me. That's that's me right there. In that moment, what Lacan calls the mirror stage, the ego is born. The ego, you know, the feeling that there is a you, right? A, a thinker of your thoughts, a feeler of your feelings, a someone to whom life is happening. But soon after the glorious emergence of the ego, the baby comes to another realization, this time regarding mom, which is that sometimes it's like, wait, where, where, where the, where's mom? But then mom comes back and it's all good uh, uh, until she leaves again. Obviously, though, mom has to leave because, you know, she, she's got to go to work. She, she's got to buy groceries. She's like, yo, I have this thing. You might have heard it. it's called a life. We may no longer be trying to secure our mom's love per se, but maybe we're trying to secure the love of our friends, our date, society, God, Kim Jong-un, Lord Zenu, Tom from MySpace, or even ourselves. We're, we're trying to secure ourselves. And so to achieve this security, to stop feeling like we're, we're not enough yet or, or like we're missing something, we try to get things. Because if we just get that thing, if I just, you know, create a YouTube channel, if I just meet the guy of my dreams, if I just reach enlightenment, if I just, I can feel that hole inside of me and finally feel whole and important and happy. Lacan calls this desirable quality in the objects we seek object A. Not to be confused with what enters your mind when you think of Justin Timberlake which is object D. Life is a never-ending search for object A. Right when we think we got it, we, we realize we want something more. It's a perpetual cycle of pleasure and suffering, an emotional roller coaster without an end that Lacan terms jewy ants. What, what is this? How do you pronounce this? Jouissance. And the thing is, jouissance is all we've got. Our pursuit of object A, our attempts to fill that emptiness inside of us is our way of shielding ourselves from the prospect of remaining, you know, empty forever, just dying off as a nobody that never mattered. It's our way of avoiding the terror we felt when mom first abandoned us and it felt like we lost everything we knew. This nothingness, the, the, the specter of pure loss that lurks in the back of our minds is what Lacan calls the thing. No, not, not not the thing, like the movie, the thing. That's that, that that's the ring. That's just a totally diff. That the swing. That's completely diff. Why why just the thing? Okay, we're talking about Lacan's thing. My thing is the thing is terrifying. It's at the root of all our existential anguish, and so to avoid falling into a pit of utter nothingness, we have to chase after Lacan's object A with all the suffering that jouissance entails. Because if we can't believe that the aching emptiness inside of us can be filled by something, anything, then what's, what's the point of any of this? We'll always feel like there's something missing, but we keep trying anyway. That's, that's all we can do. Or is it? What if we all feel like there's something missing, but the truth is that nothing could ever be missing from your life in any given moment? What if we stopped searching for things to fill some lack inside of us and began to appreciate what's already here? What if everything you need to be happy is right here, right now, in this very moment, and has been there all along? What if we could just let ourselves be whatever we are and feel whatever we're feeling because that's exactly how things should be? What if you looked back at yourself in the mirror once more, reflected on the ego you'd always hated for lacking something, and, and finally just let go? Maybe you'd find that emptiness doesn't feel so empty after all. Hello, Prairie. Hello, and welcome. Well, thank you very much. Very nice to be here. I'm honored. <laughs> okay. What was it about the life and work of Jacques Lacan that inspired you to portray him in this film? I came to Lacan's work from the avant-garde director Richard Foreman, who I started working with in 1984. And Richard, as you may or may not know, is what I consider our American Beckett. He's, uh, he's very influenced by French culture and by uh, 
French literary theory and and uh, and what the French call, I believe, in my bad French, the soisons huiteurs. You know, the the uh, the revolutionary progressive folks of the '68 period. You know, uh, and uh, and so his philosophical basis for his plays uh, evolved from a lot of that. And in fact, his main collaborator, Kate Mannheim, was a uh, patient of Jacques Lacan at one time. Kate Mannheim, uh, who's the daughter of Ralph Mannheim, the great Breck translator, and and uh, was a wonderful actress in, in Richard's plays all through the 70s and 80s. Uh, and I was fortunate to do two plays with her as well. So you know, Richard as the basis for his plays, and we won a lot of Obie Awards, and, you know, Richard has been given the Legion of Honor in France, and uh, and uh, he's a MacArthur genius, and uh, so that's where I first became enthused by Lacan's work, or at least intrigued by his work, you know. Uh, I'm more of a, a kind of Scott Peck, uh, Carol Gilligan person, if you know who they are, but... Uh, Lacan has fascinated me for a long time and his influence on literature and the, and the French uh, theorists uh, uh, has been interesting because my work as an actor has always centered on language, you know. I'm most widely known for some action films and things like that, but uh, my greatest uh, accomplishments, I mean, the work that I'm most proud of is, is my work on stage with Foreman and Shakespeare, Chekhov, Brecht, uh, you know, Ibsen, uh, these are things that uh, deal with language and philosophy and, and, you know, the phenomenon of life itself. So it was the beginning. And what was it about this film and this story, focusing on that particular part of Lacan's life, that got you interested in being part of this production? Well, I think Betty Milan, very brave and offering her own autobiographical novel, uh, to make herself the center of the story. And Ismenia Mendez does a, a fantastic job as a young, young version of, of Betty Milan. Uh, and, um, uh, you know, the, the story of this young woman's search for, mm, you know, the, some kind of answers to the problems that she's having in her own relationships with her family, with her husband. And, uh, and, uh, you know, that's the story that that uh, interested me, you know. Uh, she's the center of it, and, and Lacan, you know, is, is, the other, is the twin pole of the story, you know. And, you know, his own personal story is subtly and beautifully placed in there by Richard uh, Leeds uh, uh, to, uh, to accent, uh, you know, and highlight the story that the young woman is going through. And I thought it was just a great story. And I've always been a fan of, you know, Bergman's uh, very kind of um, uh, personality-involved stories and, and the, the films like uh, My Dinner with Andre and and these kind of things where, where it's just the people themselves and, and their ideas and their language, which, uh, which is interesting. And speaking of dinner... As an eccentric Lacan dines on breakfast while psychoanalyzing his distressed patient on the couch, what about Lacan as both a personality and also a public figure in the world of psychoanalysis that intrigued you to immerse yourself in this character? And how did you go about getting inside his head and his complicated personality? Well, I've been reading his lectures for a good number of years now, 30 years, and I'm a very poor student, I'll have to admit that, you know, but because uh, it's very complex and uses mathematical formulations for his lectures and everything. But I, I came to him, he had a big relation with Joyce, uh, uh, James Joyce. You know, he, as a young student himself, attended one of the first readings of Ulysses at Shakespeare and Company. And, uh, and so that was a door for me, you know, and Lacan's ideas of language, you know, is the most important thing. You know, I have a favorite quote from Heidegger, which I also came to through Richard Foreman. Um, you know, controversial Heidegger uh, had a, a great quote that said, 
language is the house of being and we are the caretakers of that house you know and so it's all about language and, and the importance of language and uh, I was just rereading some things uh, lectures where Lacan talks about Joyce uh, going back to the Gaelic language you know which was denied by British occupation for so long you know and and uh, it resonated with me in terms of of uh, Betty's character, you know, unlocking her own problems and story by going back to Portuguese and finding these words, important words, you know, and, and translating them for Lacan. So this idea of language, again, is, is fascinating. Mm -hmm. And is the way, as a gateway and a tool and, you know, a, a mystery, too. Yeah. Now, you've been described as, quote, a fierce actor with an attitude that makes you appear like a grenade with the pin pulled. Do you agree or disagree with that description? <laughs> well, I guess it, it seems good. I guess the earlier, uh, the early films uh, had to do with that. You know, you get known for what you do. The Warriors was my very first film. And so, you know, you kind of ride the tide if, if, if it's going that way. So I think people wrote of me that way, you know, but the plays of Richard Foreman and playing Iago in, in, in Othello and, you know, playing uh, Feste in Twelfth Night for Lincoln Center, you know, uh, uh, in the, uh, way back are, are some of my most uh, proud moments, you know, and, uh, you know, and mm. so I think there's a range there that's there. Okay, thank you for calling into the show. Thank you, Prairie. Pleasure to be here. Bye now. And Adieu Lacan is out now in release online. This is John Leguizamo, and I want to give a shout out to everybody. Get political. <laughs> Get your political on. This is John Leguizamo. Coming up next on Arts Express, the CIA wants you for the dark net, apparently, double agent Russia recruitment, or simply PSYOPs. Former intelligence operative and imprisoned whistleblower John Kariaku breaks it down for RT. The CIA wants Russians to contact them through the dark net, a network which is often used for illegal and criminal activities. The spy agency went as far as publishing an instruction in Russian on its social media channels on how to reach them. There are concerned Russians who are desperately trying to reach CIA. It's not safe to directly engage Americans physically or virtually in Russia. For those people that want to engage with us securely, this is the way to do it. First, I think that they expect to uh, perhaps encourage someone in the Russian government with access to sensitive information or classified information, perhaps in uh, the Russian intelligence services or the Russian Ministry of Defense or Ministry of Foreign Affairs to maybe uh, reach out to them with sensitive information. This is a way for them to develop a spy, to develop a source that can report back to them. But then on the other hand, I think that they also expect to worry the Russian government a little bit. Uh, maybe you throw this out there, you throw this information out there, and you hope that the Russians then clamp down on their own people, that they uh, 
become uh, uh, suspicious of their employees, and it makes working on a day-to-day -day basis a little more difficult. The CIA created a darknet site in 2019 that has the same features as its regular homepage. However, it's only accessible through the Tor Internet Browser, which has encryption features not available on most regular browsers. Again, journalist and former CIA analyst John Kiriakou was meant to do was to disrupt the Russian government, to make the Russians think that they have spies among them, that there are spies in the Russian government working for American intelligence, even if there aren't any. This at least uh, allows the CIA to disrupt, to upset uh, the Russians, to, to make their job a little bit harder. I think the American government has made it clear in a hundred different ways that they uh, that they want to interfere in the Russian-Ukrainian conflict. It's not just trying to recruit spies to steal secrets. It's providing uh, weaponry. Uh, it's providing ammunition. It's providing international political support. It's cut cutting off uh, Russian access to international banking. It's cutting off uh, Russian energy supplies. So there are a hundred different ways in which the United States is, uh, is working against Russia. And now, here is Bro on the Global Literary Beat with Lost People, Places, and Spaces, the 2022 crime novel. This is Bro on the Global Literary Beat, Breaking Glass. Today's episode, Lost People, Spaces, and Places, the 2022 crime novel. One of the largest international crime writing festivals in the world, the Quai du Polar, just closed in Lyon, France, and the subject on many writers' minds was, surprisingly, not the Ukraine, though the war was ever present, but the erasure of economies, landscapes, and memories in the transformations wrought in the last 40 years by the greedier, more all-encompassing form of capitalism, which goes by the name of neoliberalism. The only topic Polish crime novelist Zygmunt Milizewski wanted to discuss, though, was the threat of a Russian attack. Mila Zuski was asked about the state of Polish health facilities after Swedish author Camilla Greb, her book is After She's Gone, had talked about the Swedish hospital system being devastated after the 2008 financial crisis caused by U.S. capital housing speculation. Mila Zuski went so far as to claim that the main problem with the Polish health care system was the threat of hospitals being destroyed by Russian bombs. The Portuguese author of Chateau de Cartes, or House of Cards, Miguel Szymanski, took a far more reasoned approach, cautioning against disrespecting Russia and its nuclear arsenal in a move that could provoke World War III and that was anathema to any legitimate quest for European peace and security. Instead, Szymanski's novel, first of a series, focuses on the economic corruption at the highest levels in Portuguese society, also in the wake of a financial crisis. His protagonist, Marcelo Silva, is a former journalist now working in the financial office of the Lisbon police, who Silva says, attack the little guys, but I attack the big guys. Szymanski was himself a journalist who exposed two of the country's wealthiest financiers, one of whom he portrayed as a gangster. As a result of the expose, he lost his job and was forced to move to Frankfurt and work as a taxi driver until he joined a magazine there. He has now returned to Portugal to tell a similar story in the form of a crime novel. Szymanski describes a country led into a trap by the easy money loaned by German financiers, with the streets replete with, quote, German cars and everybody rushed to buy one, but which then was submitted to a massive privatization by these same banks to pay off the debt, which included losing the country's main energy company to a Chinese buyer. Lisbon, especially then, as related in the novel, became exclusively an ocean beach, a seaside amusement park. In a telling description, a Portuguese banker who is about to be submerged in the collapse sees himself trading in euros, dollars, yuans, yens, or francs, while his wife creates her cultural currency by trafficking in Hermes, Gucci, Prada, Chanel, Langerfeld, or Armani. A panel on the recurrent and contemporary rise of fascism, the Bruin Pest or Brown Plague, featured Dominique Menotti, whose latest work, Marseille, unearths a plot by racist elements in that city 
and in the police department in 1973, in the wake of the end of the Algerian War, to drive Algerians out of France, an actual event about which she said the press had, for the most part, remained silent. Manotti described as deeply troubling the fact that 30% of the French now vote far right, a result, she said, of the Brunpest never being stamped out, and so periodically, in desperate economic times like the present, with inflation following hard upon the COVID lockdown, able to return. She characterized the present time in France as pre-fascist, with a caveat that whether that tendency gathers steam is based on what actions people take to combat it. Minotti cited Philip Kerr's last novel before he died, Metropolis, in which Kerr winds the clock back on his Berlin detective Bernie Gunther to the Weimar period as an accurate description of pre-fascism. Kerr describes the city as a Babylon full of the maimed and the lame from the war, with street scenes akin to a painting by Peter Bruegel. Gunther's Nazi landlady bemoans the passing of what was a respectable city before the war, after the start of which human life stopped having much value, and where, due to the war and then the inflation in the working class quarters, people live like animals. She blames this disintegration on Poles, Jews, and Russians, as a poster anticipates the coming of Adolf Hitler, who promises to tell the truth and clean up the city. Meanwhile, the not-yet-hardened cop Gunther understands that a series of murders of women is likely the result of men who came back from the trenches with a real taste for killing. Minotti detailed her own journey in the 60s and 70s, where she worked full-time to promote social change, and then in the 80s realized that change was not going to happen, and instead began scholarly and novelistic work. Besides being an accomplished noir author, she also teaches 19th century economics. For the purpose of giving people an overview of ways the system operates, for example, in incorporating gangsters and organized crime to enforce state power. Her call to investigate and learn about the mechanisms of power was greeted by spontaneous applause from the audience. A panel titled Lands in Damnation, Memories of Places, contemplated the sense of loss and what Icelandic author Arnoldur Idriesen called melancholy at the way capital had destroyed both natural and urban habitats. Idriesen described Iceland before World War II as a land of small farmers. His policeman, Detective Erlander, in Arctic chill and strange shores, returns to the wildest part of the country, the eastern fjords, in search of the truth about the death of his long-lost brother in a snowstorm, and finds farmers dying from hunger and displaced by enormous dams. In the capital, Reykjavik, his now-retired cop-turned-private-eye Conrad, in the darkness knows, also searches in the past for the truth about his murdered father, while being horrified by the transformation of Reykjavik into a shining global city where small businesses are wiped out neighborhood by neighborhood by 20-story high-rise blocks that are a blot on the landscape. The Scottish novelist Val McDermott, whose book is How the Dead Speak, her latest, describes a similar process that had taken place beginning in the 18th century in Scotland, where the small farms, the crofts, were destroyed as landlords enclosed the land and the inhabitants were forced to migrate to the cities where they served industrializing capital as a ready, cheap, and expendable source of labor. McDermott talked about walking in the highlands and coming across scattered traces of the crofts covered by moss, but a still visible memory of the past. A different kind of laying waste was described by a Nigerian female author, Chika Unigwe, whose novel On Black Sisters Street questions the implanting of Nigerian women as sex workers in the windows of Antwerp's red light district, one of which was also a prominent character in the series on the same subject, Red Light. David Joy, whose crime novel When These Mountains Burn, recounts the devastating impact of opioids on Appalachia, as seen by a father who watches his son destroy himself, an addict and an undercover cop, decried the ways drugs were deliberately and systematically dumped on the region by Purdue Pharma, contributing to 100,000 deaths by overdose in the U.S. in 2020. The English novelist David Peace, in a panel on Noir and the Metropolis, which also echoed the theme of demolition, recounted a change in post-war Japan that took place in 1949 and is the subject of Tokyo Redux, the third part of a trilogy on that city. 
At that time, the American occupation authorities, many of them Roosevelt New Dealers who wanted to push social reforms in a more open society, realized the openness had gone too far and Japanese workers, often led by the Communist Party, were making substantial demands for power sharing in the society and now needed to be curtailed. Pieces detective Harry Sweeney, who had previously worked on breaking up gang activity and was called the Elliot Ness of Japan, is assigned the momentous and actual case of Sadanori Shimoyama, the president of the Japanese National Railroad, and his murder. Harry is urged by his superiors to be out and about, cracking union skulls and breaking red bones. Peace described that year as a moment in the transformation of Tokyo into the capitalist hypermodel of a city, a description that was echoed on the panel by Scottish Indian author Abir Mukherjee, whose book is The Shadows of Men, as being initiated in the Calcutta of the 20s, and by the novelist, actor, and director Boris Kircia, whose book is called Many Dogs, in Santiago, Chile, where, quote, liberalism destroyed the historic center of the city. Harlan Coben and John Grishin were COVID casualties, unable to make the conference. Also missing in action was Giancarlo de Cataldo, the Italian chronicler of the history of the mafia in Rome in such novels as Subura, which became the basis for a popular television series. Justin Paperback, though, is Agent of Chaos, or de Cataldo, an Italian magistrate, in a kind of Mark Twain folktale with a factual basis, describes the ascension of a petty thief, Jay Dark, who becomes a CIA asset in the 60s and distributes LSD and heroin to the radical movements of that period. Dark's handler is a German psychiatrist who believes in, quote, the sacred values of order, the family, and patriotism and who performs psychotropic experiments on mental patients in Bellevue Hospital, where he meets and transforms the street-level criminal into a cultivated agent of chaos. De Cataldo's work in charting a laying waste to aspirations for a better world was in keeping with the theme of the conference, of a devastation of human and natural habitats that, at this year's Quai du Polar, echoed through many panels, authors, cities, and countries. This is Bro. On the Global Literary Beat, Breaking Glass. Thank you, Dennis Bro. And now on Arts Express. Up in the morning and out to school. The teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man. You study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. Hi, this is Jack Shalom. In 1954, the Supreme Court issued their ruling on Brown versus Board of Education, which was supposed to end segregation in U.S. public schools. While that struggle was most visible in the South, it was occurring in different ways up north. In her book, Desegregation of the New York City Schools, A Story of the Silk Stocking Sisters, author Dr. Teresa Canada was part of a desegregation experiment herself as a student in New York City in the early 1960s. Through her own example and the oral histories of others, A Story of the Silk Stocking Sisters provides insight into the slow process of desegregation and eventual resegregation within the New York City public schools. I'm happy to have as our guest today, Dr. Teresa Canada. Hi, Teresa. Good morning. How are you? Thanks so much for this opportunity. Thank you. Well, we've all read about the issues of desegregation in the South, but there were battles over desegregation in the North as well in the 60s. You and six of your contemporaries were part of a limited experiment in desegregation in New York City. Tell us about that. Let, let me just explain specifically. One of the things that I found through my research is that the specific elementary school that the seven of us attended, PS6, which is Public School 6 in Manhattan in New York City, there was a, a policy basically in the city during that time to try to you know, desegregate schools, but they had center schools and theater schools. The school that I attended initially before I attended PS6 was a center school, but PS6 was never listed as a receiver school. That's why I call it an experiment because PS6 was not one of those schools. PS6 chose their students. They chose us. 
And what I mean by that is that we all pretty much took some type of a test in art or music. And based upon our academic acumen, which either our math and reading scores have to be well above the average, which they probably were. I know I was reading at third grade. I was reading eighth grade level at that point. That much uh-huh. I did know. So that was key. So in essence, the reason why it was an experiment is because we weren't part of the Board of Education's receiver sender process. So d- did you know the other girls at first? Oh, absolutely. I knew, I knew all the girls. We all attended the same school. Uh-huh. And, and why did you call your group the Silk Stocking Sisters? Okay. The term Silk Stockings was a term that was used for the area in New York City where PS6 is located. If you go back to the history of the different neighborhoods in New York City, the Upper East Side, that section of Upper East Side was considered the Silk Stocking District. And that's because the Carnegies lived there. And, you know, that was considered the Silk Stocking District. And the Silk Stocking itself was like really exclusive. If you could, if you could afford Silk Stockings, you really had a significant amount of wealth. You were going to PS157 in Harlem and you took the Fifth Avenue bus. I can uh, picture that downtown bus. You're going into a new neighborhood. Right? Oh, what are you seeing on your, on your <laughs> bus ride? You started seeing the changes in a variety of ways, okay? From the point of when you got on the bus, because mind you, you, the people who were getting on the bus, along with myself, who were traveling down to that area in the 80s, the only black and brown people who you saw getting on the bus were usually people who were working in those homes or those apartments in those neighborhoods, okay? So you saw the landscape of the housing change, okay? You saw the doormen, outside the buildings, okay? Now, I, I, my neighborhood was pretty nice. I hate to say it, you know, people don't think about it, but it was a pretty nice neighborhood. I mean, um, and I was, had a really, lived in a very nice community. Um, so it wasn't as, like, as dramatic, but the dramatic piece was seeing the significant number of doormen and the canopies <laughs> outside of the apartment buildings and, you know, and the pristine sidewalks and, those kinds of things. And of course, you know, the museums, you yeah, know, you yeah. pass by a museum, Metropolitan Museum of Art, and you, you know, you, you pass all these Guggenheim Museum. So you see all these museums. So that was a huge contrast. Even, and then what was even more significant was the Madison Avenue. That was, you think Fifth Avenue was, you know, <laughs> traumatic. The Fifth A- Madison was just as bad. You know, it's like, huh. oh my gosh, you know, you had these luxurious stores and the, the you know, the, the, the windows. I mean, you look inside the window like, you know, you at this is this is this is in the sixties, and how much you had to pay for an item, you know, clothing item, you know, it's like what? So the kinds of stores were even distinctly different, and I say that because we had there was a specialty store in that area, somewhere near that area, that sold things very differently that than what were sold in, in our neighborhood, <laughs> and I'll give you a perfect example. Mm-hmm. You know, the Crayola crayons are still yeah. in business. Well, you know, if you have, you know, you have different sizes of boxes you can purchase for Crayola crayons. So, you know, I'm thinking I had the 16 size box, right? So I bring my little 16 size box to school. You know, you get to bring your crayons. You know, you have to bring all these different supplies. So we get to school and I know I get to school. I'm looking there. There are people, students in the class who have this huge box of crayons. I must have like 35, almost 40 crayons in a box, and it had a special sharpener to sharpen your crayons. Okay? I'm thinking, okay. So I asked the students, where did you purchase that from? Where did you purchase that from? And so they told me. And so I told my mom, I said, Mom, I need that kind of crayon box. And so on Saturday, we would go on the bus, and go to this specific store called Lambston's mm-hmm. and Lambston's had all of these things, I guess we'd never saw. I mean, like even Craypot, I didn't even know what Craypot was. I attended PS6, like Craypot, who uses Craypot? <laughs> so these are things that were very different, but it was an educational experience, but it showed you the distinct difference between what was offered in our neighborhood in terms of mm-hmm. supplies and so forth. And much of that had to do with the economic background of people who live in the communities. And, and that was just a wake-up call, all right? But the key is um, we supported the, the girls. We supported 
ours, we supported each other. Because if we didn't have the support of each other, I don't think we would have survived or thrived in those environments. Well, let's talk about that then. First of all, did you ask to go to that school? Were you given a choice? Absolutely not. Look, here I am, a seven, eight-year-old, seven, Uh eight-year-old. Do I know about things like that? Absolutely not. As a matter of fact, I never thought about asking my parents how did the, you know, my my parents are both deceased now, but I never, I just thought about it. I never asked them how was I even chosen to be considered for this opportunity. I don't recall even knowing that. So now you're in this new school in general. What what was it like being in this uh, school that was in now in a wealthy, uh, the Silk Stocking District? Well, How was uh, it different from your old school? So it was okay, but it was just a startling difference because there were so few of us in this class. The, the, the significance was economics, the wealth. There were children who were being picked up by limousines and dropped off by limousines. There were, there were people who had maids who would pick them up and pick them up and take them home, okay? And I realized at that point, the major difference was the the economics. In, in terms of funding, what did PS6 have that perhaps PS157 did not have? Everything. They had everything. Okay. Everything. I mean, they had three kitchens. They had, you know, you had a chorus, you had a band, you had an orchestra. <laughs> this This is really strange. I had never seen this before. They had an actual machine in the office where you can clean the erasers for the blackboards. <laughs> I remember those. Okay. So that was something that, of course, my school didn't have. And I don't think the schools that my other friends attended prior to PS6 attended either. And they had a, a huge, you know, they had a, they had a gym. They had an outdoor, a, a huge outdoor playground. You know, mm. the yard was large where you had different parts of the yard that had one was I think it was a handball section so you, it was a very large yard which we didn't have okay um and you had a, a cafeteria that that was not converted into a gym it was actually the cafeteria all day and all night okay so those are the things um mm. that they had um and they had stage plays we had plays we had mm. you know their dramatic events I mean you had the musical uh concerts both the chorus and the band so there was, and we all had instruments. We all had to play an instrument, and we all were singing or singing the choir, the chorus. So it was just one of those situations where they had so much, so many opportunities for extracurricular kinds of activities that were not even available for us in our previous schools. Well, if if two schools are part of the same educational system, mm-hmm. how can there be such disparity between the funding of the two schools? Well, I guess it goes by district, um, in a sense. Um, and also, I think that maybe some districts didn't get the same equitable distribution of funding than 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 other schools. Um, and that may still be the case today, okay? The inequities in funding of schools. But it's not just the fundings, but also the facilities, okay? The facilities. The facilities are, are you know, we, we came from, I came from an a, a older building. It was just, you know, and I mean, you can always upgrade, but it wasn't. It wasn't, I guess it wasn't upgradable or they just feel it wasn't worthy. I mean, it was overcrowded. The school was overcrowded. It was hugely overcrowded. And how did the, how did the parents, teachers, and students deal with these new children coming from uptown who weren't want their it, color? Horrible. <laughs> in most cases, it was horrible experience. Ah, okay. Horrible. The, the kinds of treatment that many of us received was deplorable. One teacher would call on us when we didn't have, you know, when you have your hand down, you don't have the answer, right? So she would call us with our hands down and ask us to answer, answer the question. And, of course, we didn't have the answer. Um, and then we figured, and this, when we raised our hands, she wouldn't ask, she wouldn't, she wouldn't call on us. A friend of mine in the class, we figured out, okay, let's do this. Let's not, let's not raise our hand when we have the answer. And we raise our hand when we have the answers and see what happens. Well, she called on us, and the answer was correct, and the teacher was startled, and from that point forward, she stopped that process, okay? And I believe now, being an adult, I believe what she was trying to do was to kind of give people a sense that these students aren't as smart as the rest of the class. So that way, she was trying to make a distinction between the students who were smart and who weren't smart. So basically, she was... Mm you know, discriminating against us 
some well some students wanted to include us I, I mean we went to the party i went to parties i had a party and there were another students at parties and i attended and they you know it was a very diverse party and so was mine they came to my home so not everyone but a few people did so a few people but my but whenever i was invited to a party my father would he would drive he was a called a designated driver he would drive us to, to the little parties and pick us up okay so the students weren't as bad but definitely some of the teachers had some issues I think they were very uncomfortable or whatever. I don't know what the reason was. It may have been because they felt that we were going to take, we were taking the spots for other students. I don't know. Um, but I'll tell you, I believe that PS6 was going through an uh, uh, enrollment issue. The neighborhood that PS6 was located in at the time was beginning to lose enrollment of children of that age because at that point, some of the parents were moving out of the city. So that meant there weren't as many children of that kindergarten to sixth grade, that's the, that's the age group, were attending. So they needed to have more students in the seats. So that's why they opened up PS6, but they were exclusive whom they opened it up to. Now, let me just say that happened only up until my year in fourth grade. After the fourth grade, busing took place, literally mm -hmm. busing took place at PS6. And that wasn't based on academic performance. Anymore. It was not. No. Right. They opened it up, and these were these were students coming from different neighborhoods who were bused on yellow buses. We were not bused on yellow buses. Do you think it made a difference in who you are today, either professionally or personally, that you went to PS Six? Oh, absolutely. I would not be who I am today if it weren't for the PS Six experience. Pretty much, I have to say that because it was an early childhood experience. It had happened. You know, people think, you know, high school, college. No, that's, it's too late. Okay. I, I was fortunate um, to be able to have a parent, both parents, but basically my mother, who was open to opportunity. I never shared any of the bad experiences of PS6 with my, my family. Never, uh -huh. ever. Okay. Because I, I, I believe if, <laughs> if my mother knew about some of the experiences, she would have pulled me out right away. But we hung in there. We were going to, we were determined to be able to be successful. And it was just like a community. And I mean, I developed friendships with other people. As a matter of fact, <laughs> I've reconnected with some of my fourth grade classmates. And I think that gave me an opportunity to see and to be exposed. And then people were exposed to me, okay? And they learned something about me. And that was important, okay? So, you know, I think that it was something that really, because I look at, I have three other siblings. and there's no question. I'm, I'm a little different. Okay. And I think I'm a little bit different anyway, but I just, it's just, I believe my PS6 experience created the possibilities for me differently. Did, did the boys from, uh, from your neighborhood who went to PS6 have a different kind of experience than, than they didn't girls? stay. They didn't stay. One stayed one year, the one in my fourth grade class, he stayed one year, then he, he left, he never returned. And if you read something else in the book, there are a lot of the other, many, many of them did not make it, did not stay. They just left. And it was just, if you think it was bad for me as a, as, a, as a young girl, you can imagine it was like for them. After the first year that I was there, the, the, the um, young man was in my class. He, he, didn't, he didn't return. And what does PS6 look like now? And what percentage of the New York City schools are desegregated now? Very few. New York City schools are, are more segregated now pretty much than it was back in the 60s. To this day, <laughs> PS6 is very similar in terms of their population as they were during the 1960s. What do you think is the most important change now that can improve education for Black children? Well, I'll tell you. We as a society, society have to get away from, you know, quote unquote, integration being the, you know, you want to have everybody the different ethnic groups in the same classes. When we look at, if you look at that in terms of integration policies and some of the the kinds of things, like I said before, the magnet school was set up to try to get basically suburban, you know, uh, students coming from the suburb, suburbs to come into the cities so that you'd have more diverse classrooms, okay? But nine out of 10 times, those children didn't want to come in to the city. You know, it was always like, for example, what happened? I ended up going to another school. They, didn't, they weren't going to bring them over to PS157, okay? So it was never the opposite. It was always, you know, black and brown children going elsewhere. And I think that's an issue. Now, I don't, I don't know if there is going to ever be a situation, if we're going to look at a situation where we're going to always have 
majority white environments and minority people of color being integrated, that's not going to work. Okay, it's not going to work. I think we have to look at different ways that can provide equitable education to everybody, wherever they are. We're not going to be able to keep moving people around. And I think that um, my thing is make all the schools excellent. Like I said before, many of the girls in the book, some of them said if they had had the same thing in the schools that they left, they would not have gone to PS6. But they didn't have the same things. Okay. So PS6 offered us things that our schools didn't offer. Every school needs to have an enhanced environment. Schools need to be equitable in terms of what they offer children, no matter where the schools are located. Children can learn if you give them what they need, all right? And many schools don't have the facilities that are appropriate. They don't have the equipment. They don't have the supplies, okay? They don't have the safety issues, okay? There's a lot more that comes into play now than before. So I think we have to look beyond just ethnicity. And that's been the focus for um, since, since Brown versus Board of Education. Um, I believe in people being educated in the best form and fashion that they can be. I mean, I, from my experience, what I've gone through, I think it's important that we be exposed to all kinds of people. And I think for me, it allowed me to understand the significance of that. And as a result, that's why I wanted to write the book so people can say, this is what happened. This is an, ex- this is an experiment that happened. Why does it have to be an experiment? Why does it have to be a, something we got to try? Why can't all environments be able to provide excellence in terms of offering for their, their children in the schools, wherever they are? Thank you, Dr. Canada. Thanks so much for this opportunity. I've been talking with Dr. Teresa Canada, author of Desegregation of the New York City Schools, A Story of the Silk Stocking Sisters, published by Peter Lang. This is Jack Shalom for Arts Express with host Prairie Miller. And that's all we have time for today on Arts Express expression in the arts. And if you'd like to express yourself too, you can write to us at theradiogoddess at gmail.com. Until next time, this is Prairie Miller leaving the station.